If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll get there eventually this morning as we come to a really great passage. Jesus in his ministry was constantly being opposed by the religious leaders of his day. There was a certain group that opposed him, and that group were kind of the liberals of the time. They were called the Sadducees, and... uh, One of the things that distinguished the Sadducees uh, from the Pharisees is the Pharisees were kind of the people who, uh, the group that kind of was into the Old Testament and what was old, and the Sadducees were into what was new, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) Couldn't resist. But in Matthew 23, verses 23 through 33, we learn this. Matthew writes, On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the seven uh, of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Not, and do, you are mistaken, not understanding these scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, you know, there are a lot of people today who don't believe in the resurrection. There are a lot of people who just can't bring themselves to believe in any miracle at all, especially that someone's going to die and they're going to cremate them or stick them in a hole in the ground and then they're going to decay. And then at some point in the future, they're going to be all reassembled, put back together better than they were and be raised from the dead. People just have a hard time believing that. And even some who profess to be Christians have a hard time believing in the resurrection They even try to explain the bodily resurrection of Jesus away. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you got to believe it. But they don't even believe that. They just say, well, Jesus, you know, all the other stuff is okay about him. But, you know, the resurrection part is, I mean, he was, you know, he he was raised not bodily, not physically. He was, you know, raised in essence. Of course, all of these views come from the very pit of hell and they are damning doctrines. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how often you go to church, how well you know your Bible or your Christian upbringing. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you are not a Christian. You survey the book of Acts sometime 
And you will discover that the apostles went forth to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Read that in Acts chapter 1 verse 22. In Acts 2.31, Peter preached the resurrection at Pentecost. In Acts 4.2, it says the Sadducees were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And in Acts 4.33, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 17.18, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to the Greeks at Athens. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that Jesus' identity as the Messiah, Lord and Savior and Son of Man is verified by the power of his resurrection from the dead. No resurrection, then he's not the Messiah, he's not the Lord, he's not the Savior, and he's not the Son of Man. You take away the resurrection from Christianity and you end up with a cult. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses the resurrection at great length in the whole chapter. And in verses 12 through 17, he says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover... We are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And just in these verses alone, Paul tells us the consequences of denying the resurrection. He says, one... If you deny the resurrection, you deny the scriptures. Two, you deny the resurrection, you deny Christ. Three, if you deny the resurrection, the preaching of the gospel is worthless. Four, if you deny the resurrection, your faith is worthless. Five, if you deny the resurrection, Christ was never raised. And six, if you deny the resurrection, you are still in your sin and on your way to hell. You have to believe in the resurrection. And I believe that most of us here believe in the resurrection. It would be strange to come to church on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection and not believe in the resurrection. And yet, many do. Many come to church on Easter Sunday. Maybe they're here to appease their guilty conscience. Maybe they're here... Because of family and friends to please men or parents. Some might even mistakenly think that, you know, if they give God the crumbs of their church attendance on certain days, that maybe God will like them more. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus made it clear in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Notice Jesus says that everyone is resurrected, not just believers, but even unbelievers. It's just where you go after your resurrection, resurrected. 
Everybody gets resurrected. But there is something else about the resurrection that I think a lot of Christians never think about. I mean, it is true that on Easter morning, we celebrate Christ risen from the dead. And that is great that he rose from the dead because that means we too will be raised from the dead. But there is a very practical aspect of the resurrection that we need to understand as believers and we need to apply every day of our life. The resurrection is for present living today. Do you know how that is? Do you know what or how the resurrection does in our lives every single day? Well, we're going to find out in the text before us this morning. I don't know if you were at the uh, um, service we had, the family fellowship service a couple weeks ago, about a week ago. And uh, Beth Matt came up and she gave a little presentation and um, she read some scripture. And I like that scripture because that's the same scripture that my wife scripture reference that my wife has had engraved on my wedding band. Uh, I had uh, one of my favorite texts put on her wedding band, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And she had 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. And I've always wanted to preach on this passage. I've, I've memorized that passage and I've always wanted to preach on this. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. So you want to turn there because we're going to be looking at that text. Now, I'm going to do a little background here, but we are going to get there. So just relax and listen. Corinth was a major trade route. It was built, the city was built on an isthmus, which is a narrow strip of land. It was four miles long or four miles wide, and it connected connected two big continents, two big chunks of land with this little narrow strip of land in between. And people traveling from this big chunk of land to that big chunk of land would be traveling through Corinth. And so they had all of this travel and trade in Corinth. Not only that, but it was also a shipping lane. Yes, I said it right, shipping lane. Usually you don't think of land as shipping lanes, but Corinth was one. The reason is, is that captains would have to sail 250 miles around the Peloponnesian Peninsula in order to go from the Gulf of Corinth to the Saronic Gulf. The Gulf of Corinth was located to the west, the Saronic Gulf to the east. And so if you wanted to go, you had to make a 250 mile voyage or you could have your boat pulled on skids across the four mile isthmus. And so many did. And so there were sailors there. There were merchants there. There were people going in all directions there. And it was a very pagan place. It was very wicked, full of vice and immorality and drunkenness. As a matter of fact, the term uh, a term became coined to describe uh, immorality and drunken debauchery. It was called to Corinthianize. Named after the wickedness of that city. And these are just the kind of people that Jesus likes to save. And that is why Paul went straight away to Corinth as he was on his missionary journey, his second missionary journey. And we read in Acts 18 that he went there, he preached the gospel, and many people repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. 
But Paul, of course, was always on the move. And he eventually he had to move on to establish churches in other places. And so he did. Eventually, he ended up in Ephesus. And while there, he heard news that the Corinthian church was having some major problems. And so what he did is he wrote to them. They were having problems, personality clicks, problems with immorality, problems with giving, problems with serving, problems with the Lord's Supper, problems with just Christians suing each other, and just about every other thing you could think of, they had big problems. The reason is, is the Corinthian culture was very pagan. It wasn't like a Jewish culture around Jerusalem where the Jews kind of had a history of the law of God and understood what God wanted them to do, and then converting to Christianity was not a huge step. But the Corinthians, a lot of them were very pagan. They had all this pagan trashy background and habits and bad doctrine and superstition. And so they brought all this with them when they became Christians. And they were trying to sort through and find out what was true and what was the trash that needed to be thrown away. So Paul wrote a letter to them correcting some of their problems after you'd heard they're having problems. And we don't have that letter. But it is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. They in turn wrote a letter back to Paul. And when they wrote back to him, he then responded with the book we call 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is the second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote, they wrote him back, and then he wrote the book we call 1 Corinthians. Then later we discover that some false apostles snuck into the church at Corinth and they begin to attack Paul and discredit Paul and say, you know, he, he's only in it for the money. He's only in it for the sexual pleasure. He is only trying to exploit you. He's not a real apostle. And these, these are just Satan's emissaries to try and destroy the church. Well, when Paul heard about this, he left Ephesus right away, went to Corinth to go confront these false apostles. And he shows up for the showdown at the OK Corral. And he he says, you know, you're the bad guys. And these false apostles blast him. They insult him. They accuse him of all sorts of wickedness. And this is what is amazing. They had been there long enough that they had so thoroughly deceived and deluded the Corinthians that no one came to Paul's defense. Nobody. I mean, he was the one who planted the church and nobody came to his defense. And so he was attacked, viciously slandered, and he left rejected. He left hurt and depressed. Kind of crawled back to Ephesus. But eventually, Paul's righteous anger and indignation overcame his grief. He realized he was the apostle. He was sent to preach the gospel. This was God's will for him. And so he was going to set things right. And he wrote another letter, a third letter, which Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 2, 4 as the severe letter. And he just blasts them. I mean, he just blasts them in that letter. 
And then Paul didn't know how they were going to respond. He thought, oh, I hope I wasn't too mean. And if you read 2 Corinthians, you know, he's going, oh, I hope I didn't cause you too much sorrow because he loved them. He was trying to save them from these false teachers. And so he was wondering and he was anxious to see how they would receive his rebuke. And so he decided to leave Ephesus and go to meet Titus at Troas. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, Titus came and said, Paul, you won't believe it. They repented. They repented, and most of them are supporting you as the apostle. They want you to know they're behind you 100%. The problem is, is some were still not supporting him. Some still doubted. And Paul realized that he needed to get on it right now and put an end to this. And so he writes 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. First and second Corinthians are the second and fourth letters Paul wrote. And so the whole theme, the whole purpose of second Corinthians is to argue that Paul is an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ, a proclaimer of the truth and not some sort of farce. Now, I tell you this whole melodrama because this whole business helps you understand our text this morning. You need to understand this because the whole book of second Corinthians is a polemic. It's an argument. It's a defense of Paul's authentic apostleship. Now let's just say you were the apostle Paul and you were going to defend your apostleship. How would you do that? Would you say, well, let me tell you what happened at the Damascus road. Would you say that? So let me do some miracles for you. Would you do that? Now let me speak in tongues for you. Would you do that? I mean, what would you do? Well, you know, Paul goes about it a very interesting way. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 10, he mentions some things that are very interesting. If you look in verses 4 through 10, he mentions afflictions four times, sufferings four times, carrying a burden of death, having a sentence of death and having a great peril of death upon him. In these verses, he just talks about his his incredible sufferings for Christ. Then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and following, talking about being afflicted, being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down, always caring about the dying of Jesus and constantly being delivered over to death. Then later on in the book, in chapter 11, he really gets into it. He talks about how he was beat and how he was shipwrecked and how he was stoned and scourged and received the 39 lashes and goes on and on and on. And you know what? He hates this. He hates this. All the way through the book, he's apologizing. I'm sorry I have to do this. I hate to have to defend myself. I hate having to let you know that, you know, I'm an apostle and I just, I just don't even like this. Boasting stuff. I don't even like telling you this stuff, but I want you to know this is what I did. And why does he do that? Because who in their right mind would go through all that suffering? Who in their right mind would volunteer to go around and have sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and beatings and persecutions and imprisonments? Who would do that unless they really love the Lord and they really love the Corinthians? And that's his whole point. His whole point is, listen, I suffered for you. I've suffered for the gospel. Uh, Yeah, ask those false apostles if they've suffered even a millimeter. 
Then in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, Paul acknowledges that, you know what? I just want you to know, my body, my earthly tent, he calls it in this section, it's going to die. But that's okay with me. You know why it's okay with me? Because I'm rising from the dead. Because of the resurrection. That's why it's okay. And if you look at verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. He says, go ahead, kill me. Let him kill me. He says, that's how come I keep suffering for Christ. Listen, when they kill me, I'm going to live even if I die. I am not going to die. They cannot take away from me the resurrection. (laughs) And you know what? I'd rather be with Jesus anyways. So if I live, I'm going to be the Lord's. And if I die, way better. And that was his motive. That was his, his hope. That's how he could press through. But there was something else. There was something bigger. Some other driving thing. That was kind of his insurance. But there was something bigger. What kept Paul going for the Lord through thick and thin? What enabled him to suffer, endure, and press on through all those beatings and imprisonments and persecutions? Well, our text this morning tells us. It tells us how all of us are to be motivated as Christians to live our life for Christ. And this is what the text says. Look there. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In these two verses, we have a grand statement And then we have an explanation of the grand statement. If you look at verse 14, the grand statement there is, for the love of Christ controls us. And every word in this grand statement is very significant. The first little three-letter word is significant, the word for, which connects what Paul has already said with what he is going to say now. In other words, he's saying because of or for, or let me tell you why I've suffered for you, why I've preached the gospel around the whole Mediterranean world, why I've gone through all this pain and agony, why I keep writing you letters, why I keep coming to visit. I'll tell you why. For, and now he's going to give us the reason, the love of Christ. That's why. The love of Christ. Now, when you study different Greek words, you discover that there's several words that describe love. One's kind of a sensual word. Another is kind of a brotherly love, uh, deep friendship. And then there is the ultimate, the greatest kind of love, which is agape love. This is the Love that God has for us. It is a self-sacrificing love that does what is best for others. Even at great expense. And this is the word that is used here. The love of Christ. The great unconditional kind of love which sacrifices for others. The love of Christ, Paul says. And how did Christ demonstrate his love to you? Well, John 3.16 tells us flat out. God so loved the world that he what? He gave his son. The same word for love there. He gave his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son. Paul says in Romans 5.8, what? 
Do you remember? And God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That is how Christ demonstrates his love. And Paul says Christ's sacrificial love is what controls us. There might be translated constrain. It just, it's a word that describes a holding together, a force that, that causes things to be kept together, pressed together. And it's a present active verb, which means it's always happening. The love of Christ is always constraining, controlling, holding Christians to the course of their life. I don't know if you've ever gone to a theme park or not. I mean, after you get older, theme parks don't seem all that wonderful. You go to a theme park and maybe Magic Mountain or something, you're standing in one of those tedious lines and you get up to one of these, you know, scary looking roller coasters. And what do they do? You, you get in there and you sit down and then they put this bar across your lap and they snap it in. That bar is there to control you. To constrain you. And I'm telling you, once that thing gets started, and you know, you're heading towards space and you take that 90 degree turn, and you're thinking to yourself, I want off! Sorry, there's no turning back, baby. You are constrained, you are controlled. And then, you know, you do the loop de loop thing and you're going, I want off! Sorry. You are constrained. You are controlled. Then you do the corkscrew thing and you're, you're wondering which way is up and your, your chin is pressed to your shoulder and you want to get up. You're there for the duration. Why? Because that constrains you. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. When you are a Christian and you understand the love of Christ, you are constrained. You are controlled. You are held to a certain course of life that you cannot deviate from. Now Paul is going to explain why the love of Christ controls us. He gives us three explanations of why the love of Christ controls us so that every believer will have a proper, compelling motivation to live their life in Christ. And here's the first one. Christ died to save those who would believe. Notice what Paul says. The love of Christ controls us. He says, having concluded this, and this is Paul's way of saying, because we know this to be true, or because we have come to this conclusion now, because uh, we, everybody knows this is correct, the love of Christ controls this, having concluded this, or come to this obvious conclusion, he then explains what he means by the love of Christ controls us. And what is it? Look into the next phrase in verse 14. That one died for all. Now just stop there. The one, of course, is Christ. We know what die is. But what or who is the all there? There's two different ways you could basically take it. All can be understood as all, every and each, believer and unbeliever who has ever lived, all encompassing all. Or a lot of times, all is used in a more limited way, all of a group or all of a certain kind. That is how it is used here. How do we know that? Because the very next thing Paul says is, therefore, all died. So, he died for all who? What group of all? The all that died. 
Now we're going to look at this in a minute, but unbelievers don't die with Christ. So we know he's talking about believers here. Only believers do. Yet the point Paul is trying to make is this. The motive of a Christian's obedience to Christ, even in pain, even in suffering, even in trial and hardship, is the love Christ expressed in his death and resurrection. And resurrection. Imagine being a prisoner on death row. You know, you've robbed some place and you've ruthlessly you know, murdered some young girl. And you have been tried and sentenced to die by lethal injection. And you deserve it. You deserve it. When the day of your execution comes, you are led to a room where they strap you in a chair. A doctor puts an IV in your arm. A chaplain prays for you. The warden reads a statement summarizing the crimes you have committed and the sense of judgment handed down by the courts, death by lethal injection. It just so happens that that day, that young girl's father, the one that you murdered, is there also. And right before they press the button, which will pump that deadly poison into your veins and kill you, that girl's father comes up and pulls the IV out of your arm and sticks it in his arm. There you are, strapped in the chair. You're wondering what is going on. The warden wonders what's going on. And the man looks at the warden and says, I want you to know, I'm a sinner just like this man. I've killed people in my heart before. And I'm no better than he is. And I want this man to know that I love him. I want this man to know that I forgive him and I'm willing to demonstrate it. I am willing right now to voluntarily, without compulsion, without any coercion, to receive the due penalty of his crime so that he can go free and know that I both love him and forgive him. And the order is given. There you are, still strapped in the chair as you watch the fluid travel down the tubes into this man's veins. And he's standing there. He's not, nothing's holding him there. You're held in the chair, but he's just standing there. And he's looking at you. And the poison's going into his veins. He starts to wilt. His eyes roll back in his head and he falls in a dead heap on the floor. Now, would that be amazing? That would be amazing. That would be hard to believe. Though you did deserve to die, though you killed the man's daughter, yet you go free and the other man dies. And he demonstrates to you that he loves you. He demonstrates to you that he forgives you. And then you go free. That would be incredible. That would be unheard of. But think of how much more amazing it would be If you could find a sinless man, a man who never did anything wrong in thought or deed ever, a man who was willing with no constraints under no compulsion to willingly give his life and not by some quick, painless 
lethal injection, but was willing to suffer a very long, painful, torturous, agonizing death so that you could be set free. This is what Paul is referring to in verse 14 when he says, one died for all. Christ the just died for you, the unjust. Jesus, though sinless, under no compulsion, coercion, voluntarily gave himself for his enemies that they might escape the judgment of God. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's what Paul is talking about here. Those who believe, secondly, die with Christ. This is a little stranger. Look at verse 14. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all. Okay, we've got that part. Therefore, all died. Now, what is that? Therefore, all died? When you become a Christian, you drop dead? What is that? That's kind of a strange phrase. Well, you know what? Paul explains this, dying with Christ in many places in the New Testament. I'm just going to mention two texts. Listen to how he describes it. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Did you see that? Paul says, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your union with Christ, you participate in his death. You participate in his resurrection. You participate in the atonement that he offers. And you die to that old self. You die to that old style of life to live a new life. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In these texts and quite a few others, Paul teaches believers when they place their faith in Christ are united with Christ, united in his death and united in his resurrection. Imagine having a huge backpack strapped on your back. You know, some of you younger people have to go to school. You know, think of how much those books weigh. You have to lug to school every day. Don't you hate carrying those things? Big fat history books and math books and social studies books. But imagine having a pack that weighed just as much as you are. I don't know what your weight is, but just imagine having a pack that heavy on you. Now, if you were very physically fit and you were strong, you could you could get by for a short while with a pack that heavy on your back. It would be burdensome. It would wipe you out. Just doing a little bit would just uh, make you want to crumble. You couldn't you couldn't live like that. Well, our sin is like that. Our sin is this huge, heavy burden upon us. But you know what? People who don't know Christ, people who are spiritually dead, 
to the things of God, they don't realize what a burden of sin is on them. Not a physical burden, but a spiritual burden. A burden which is just on them, weighing them down. And yet in this life, because they don't think of God, they don't read God's word, they hardly ever feel their burden at all. But I tell you this, if someone like that were to die, and when they are ushered into the presence of Christ and they stand before the judge of heaven and earth, they would feel their burden. And what a ponderous burden it would be. The weight of their sins accumulated during their life on earth would be overwhelming and bearing down on them. And they would realize that they had no right now to stand before the Lord. They could not stand before the Lord. Their sins would crush them before him whose eyes like a flame of fire pulling them down to destruction. And there would be nothing that anyone could do. They couldn't do anything and Christ couldn't do anything because they waited too late. But you take a person in this life with that huge burden of sin and in this life you have that person understand they have that burden, understand that Jesus is able to remove it and to have them flee from the wrath to come and to come to Christ, repent of their sins, believe that Jesus died for them and was buried and rose again for them, then that huge ponderous burden of sins would be removed forever. Forever. And then if they were to die, they would stand before him holy and blameless with great joy and no burden. And this is what Paul means when he says there in the text, therefore all died. All who place their faith in Jesus Christ have by faith participated in the death of Christ. They have escaped damnation in the judgment of God and now are free to live in newness of life. Look at verse 15. Paul wants to give us one more explanation. Christ died so that you would live for him. Paul says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that. Now, whenever you see that so that phrase there, it's called a hinah purpose clause. It tells us this is the purpose why Christ died and rose again. So that what? Well, Paul mentions it two ways. First, he states it negatively, and then he states it positively. Negatively, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. In other words, Christian, Christians who understand Christ's love for them no longer live for themselves. Positively, Paul says, but how do they live? They live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, we've already addressed Christ's death. But notice Paul adds the little Easter phrase here. Rose again on their behalf. You know, usually we think of Jesus dying for us. I think if you, if I were to come up to the average person here and say, so what did Jesus do for you? What would you say? Well, he died on the cross for my sins, or he died for me, or he shed his blood for me, or he suffered for me. But a lot of times you never hear people say and rose again. Do you realize that Christ's death is not good news unless he rose again? 
He has to rise again. Otherwise, it's bad news. They killed him over. Jesus said to Martha right before raising Lazarus from the dead. You remember the story, John 11. Lazarus, Jesus, good buddy is sick. They send messengers and say, Jesus, you know, come on. You're able to do miracles. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Come on. Lazarus is sick. Come, come fix him. And Jesus says, yeah, we'll get there. It's like, come on, come on. Yeah, we're going to be hanging around here for a couple of days. And Jesus waits till he dies. His good buddy dies. And then he comes strolling back four days later. I'm here. And both Mary and Martha ask him this same thing, kind of give him this rebuke. If you would have been here earlier, you know, Lazarus wouldn't die. You could have healed him. And when Martha says that to him, Jesus says this in John eleven twenty five and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She needed to believe it. You need to believe it. When you know Jesus, you live even if you die. That is some seriously good insurance. You know, I don't care how good your your whole life is, your term insurance or whatever, your trust. But I'm telling you, you trust in Jesus. You live even if you die. And that's great. And you know, this resurrection thing has a very practical application. Now listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, as he's speaking to the disciples. He said, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. They're going to kill you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to, you know, do all these bad things to you. And this is how he encouraged them. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Fear God because God is the one who can both kill you physically and eternally. But if you know Christ, you live. You live. Because of Christ, your faith in Christ, you live. You can't kill a Christian spiritually. I don't care if you get somebody, kill a Christian, shoot them, burn them, grind them into powder, spread them out. They're fine. They're still living with Jesus. They're still going to be resurrected. You can't stop it. There's nothing anybody can do. Once you know Christ, you live even if you die and no one can stop you from being raised again, immortal to live with Christ for all eternity. Now, there are a lot of video games out today where the goal of the game is to shoot the bad guys before they shoot you. And I won't even try and name what they are because last time I did that, I had a whole bunch of junior hires come and rebuke me because I didn't get the term right. <laughs> Some game Nintendo. and no, it's a GameCube, you know. It's like, whatever. But you know, those computer things. Now, how popular do you think those games would be if you, you know, go to the store, you pay 30 or 40 or whatever they cost, you, you bring them home, you load them up in your computer, your game widget, and then you decide to play. And so you start playing, and all of a sudden the bad guys come out, and they shoot you, and you die. And the little screen comes up. Game over. You may throw away the game and buy a new one. What? Listen. 
gamers believe in the resurrection. (laughs) Don't they? They do. They know that if their persona gets killed, they're coming back to life. And they're going to be way better than they were before. They believe in the resurrection. And see, this is the same attitude that Paul had, that he says every Christian should have. What are they going to do? Do you kill you? You're coming back. And when you come back, you're going to be better than you were before. You can't lose if you know Christ. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. We are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Around the turn of the century, Francis Havergel was visiting an art museum in Dusseldorf, Germany. And there she saw a large painting by Sternberg. The painting depicted Christ bruised and beaten, wearing a crown of thorns, standing between Pilate and the mob. And she looked at the painting and looked at the little caption below it. And it said this, this have I done for thee. What has thou done for me? And she just stood there. And she looked at the painting and looked at those words and looked at the painting and looked at those words until she started weeping. She pulled out a little piece of paper and scribbled this down. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed that thou mightest ransom be and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me i suffered much for thee more than thy tongue can tell of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell i've borne i've borne it all for thee what hast thou borne for me i have brought to thee down from my home above salvation full and free My pardon and my love I bring. I bring rich gifts to thee. What hast thou brought to me? What have you given Christ? What have you carried for Christ? What have you brought to him? You know, I know many of you know the Lord. But I ask you now, what motivates you as a Christian? What controls you? What constrains you? Is it duty? Is it peer pressure? Is it just mere habit, guilt, pride? Or is it the proper motive, the love of Christ? The love of Christ. If you are a Christian, you must come to the place in your life where you can say the love of Christ controls me. For the rest of you, for those of you who do not know Christ. Your life betrays you. Well, some of you may be sitting out there right now thinking to yourself, well, I'm sure he's talking about the person down the pew for me. He could be talking about me. I've been a Christian all my life. You know, I've been a Christian since I was four. I was a Christian when I prayed the sinner's prayer. I was a Christian since in college group when I did whatever. But I may be talking to you. I may be talking to you. Because I am talking to those who do not love Christ. Is that you? Do you love Christ? I'm talking to you 
who may not love the Lord because this is the acid test of your salvation. Do you love Christ? If you were to die right now from some, you know, ruptured brain aneurysm or a heart attack and you were ushered in the presence of Christ, could you look at him and say, I have loved you. And you know, because you are all knowing that I have loved you. Could you say that? Could you look at Christ and say, you know, I have hungered and thirsted for righteousness, your righteousness. You know, I have studied your word. You know, I have read your word. You know, I have meditated and strive all my life to practice what your word says I need to do. You know, I love you. Would that be true of you? Could you say, you know, Lord, that I love you because I have honored you with my time. You know, I have honored you with my money. You know, I have honored you with my gifts. You know, I have honored you with my resources. You know that. I have served the saints faithfully because I loved you, not perfectly, but faithfully. I worship you Sunday, week after week, and every other day of the week, I live for you because I loved you, and you know I did, that I offered my body as best I could, a living sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable. You know I love you. Can you say that? Can you say, I love spending time with you? I prayed to you often in public places and in private, asking for things, praising you, confessing my sins. Lord, you know it's true. And though I never loved you as much as I should, should, you know that I love you. Can you say that? If you know in your heart, And by the demonstration of your life that you do not love Christ, you are in a perilous place. A very dangerous place. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus, come and judge them who do not love you. This Easter morning, God has a message for you who do not love Christ. And that message is this. Repent and flee from the severe wrath of God to come. If you think I'm trying to scare you, you are correct. The author of Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. You need to cry out to Christ right now in your heart and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm an enemy. Save me from my sin. I believe you are the Lord who died in the cross for me, was buried and rose again. I believe it. I turn my life over to you. I give you my all. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You cry out like that and you mean it from the heart. He will save you. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be united with him in his death. You will die to sin. Death will no longer have any power over you. And you will live for eternity with Christ even though you die. So the question God puts before all of us today, and as we leave here today, we need to ask ourselves this. Does the love of Christ control me? Does it or does it not? Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Now, don't be confused here. Keeping God's commandments, keeping the commandments of Christ do not save you. That does not save you. What saves you is placing your faith in what Jesus did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That saves you. Keeping the commandments is a demonstration of your love after you're saved. Do do you do that? You cannot say you love Christ if you are unwilling to follow after him. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, wrote a short poem, which I will close with. And when I do, and you listen to the words, ask yourself the question, the grand question this text proposes. Does the love of Christ control me? Carmichael writes, Has thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee song is mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Has thou no wound, no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned against the tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that encompass me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound and no scar? Of course, the answer to that is no. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We look at our own hearts and our own lives and we ask ourselves, have we suffered like Paul did? Do we have the badge of true believers, which is being willing to live for you, to suffer for you, to walk and follow you. Father, I pray that every one of us here would ask ourselves these important questions. Do I live for myself or do I live for him who died and rose again on my behalf? Father, I pray that if there's somebody here who has never repented of their sins, who has never placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has never called out for mercy and grace to be saved, who has the sentence of judgment right now upon them, I pray your grace would come upon them like an overflowing flood and that they in their hearts right now before you would be broken, would cry out to you for mercy, that you would save them, transform them, And make the love of Christ control them. That they might live for you. Since you in fact did die. And rise again on our behalf. Father we thank you for that. We praise you this Easter morning. May we live the resurrection. Until we die to be raised again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.